Welcome everybody um, back to the New Books and Buddhist Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sansarei Mayujid and I'm the host of the channel for today. So delighted to welcome Professor Bertha Janssen, who is a chair of Central Asian Studies at the Institute of Indian and Central Asian Studies at the University of Leipzig, and the author of The Monastery Rules, Buddhist Monastic Organization in Pre-Modern Tibet, that we're going to be talking about today, which was published by the University of California Press. Welcome, Berta. So nice to be here. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so lovely to have you here. Um, I remember attending your talk at the International Association for Tibetan Studies Seminar in 2013 in Mongolia. Um, I think I was just a master's student, and I was so inspired and also terrified at the prospect that you were one of the few people working on the topic at the time. And then to witness the field just explode over the years with you in the center, it's been quite a journey. Um, yeah, so could you tell us a bit about you and your journey so far? That, that, that's, first of all, just um, responding to that, that's absolutely right. And um, it's so nice. Um, it's, uh, we've just had another one of these conferences. And I have found that people have really taken up the study of these monastic guidelines and uh, people are uh, scho- other other scholars other than me are engaging with the material, and this is just really wonderful to see. I'm I'm so happy to uh, to see this sort of this um, these wonderful source materials being really taken up and 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 used by others. Um, but first, I'll, I'll just uh, say something uh, about myself, and um, um, so I came to Buddhist studies and Tibetan studies in this sort of roundabout way, I would say. Um, I was interested in Tibet actually really from a rather young age. I think I was about nine or ten when I really started sort of learning about Tibet. And first of all, from a sort of more um, activist or sort of political um, motivation, um, my mother was a, a Tibet supporter, so we would get these sort of newsletters, and um, and it was also the the heyday of um, you know of, of of peak Tibet in in sort of Hollywood and and all the sort of more popular media. Um, so I got very um, interested, involved in Tibetan sort of more political issues, and from that actually I I started to get interested in. Uh, intrigued by by the Dalai Lama, and uh, I was thinking if he has, and he had just won the Nobel Prize, um, and I thought if he has all these things to say, or you know, he does these wonderful things for Tibetans, then uh, he might also have some other interesting things to say. So I started reading. I was a quite a precocious child. I started reading books on Buddhism when I was about eleven, twelve, and I really. I can't claim that I really understood anything, but uh, there was some kind of pull towards that. So initially it was more, um, I was interested in uh, Tibet and and became more and more interested in in Buddhism um, from a more sort of a a practitioner practitioner angle. There wasn't really uh, so much sort of academic interest there initially. Uh, and when I was 18, I, um, I went to India um, to study Buddhism. Um, and I lived in Dharamsala for six months the first time around. 
And then I decided I wanted to study Tibetan, uh, but not in an academic way again, uh, but to become an interpreter. So um, I, uh, after that, I, I went back and in, in the end stayed for five years to study uh, Tibetan and Buddhism in, uh, in McLeod Ganj in Dharamsala. Uh, where I also did the Lotsawa Rinchen Sangwo translator program, which is a program of the uh, FPMT. Um, and I uh, managed to finish that and become an interpreter for um, Buddhist Tibetan. And I worked as an interpreter for a number of years. It's something that I, I still uh, occasionally do. Um, and moving back to the West, um, the... So the, the way I got into studying, and I'd never been to university or college previously, uh, was actually because we, in the Netherlands, we had a rather gen- generous um, s- sort of scholarship system. Um, and, you know, as an interpreter, I wasn't making enough money to live off. And then I thought, well, you know, I could also just, as a, you know, being a part-time interpreter, I could just sort of enroll in university and and see what happens. And it was a way to sort of get by. Um, And uh, it turned out it was, and I studied um, Indology with sort of a a large dose of of Tibetan and Tibet in there as well, and Buddhism, um, at Leiden University. And uh, I won a scholarship to go to Oxford and do my master's there. Um, in uh, Tibetan Himalayan studies, my MPhil. And after that, I was offered a PhD position with Professor Jonathan Silk, again, back in in Leiden. Um, And this is also sort of how um, uh, the topic that I chose, uh, the topic of the book came to be, because um, I was employed as a PhD uh, student in, within the context of a um, uh, research project that Professor Silk uh, held, and that was uh, the, the general topic was Buddhism and social justice. And this meant we had a, a sort of a, a research group, which was wonderful, with someone in India doing Indian Buddhism, Korean Buddhism, Japanese Buddhism, and later on also Chinese Buddhism. Um, so we were uh, quite a mixed bunch, and we were engaging with the sort of idea of what is the social position of Buddhism and Buddhists in the in in Asia, uh, both in in the past and in the present. But mostly, most of us are sort of more we're more working on the uh, historical uh, side of things. Um, so. Engaging with this sort of very difficult, very Western idea of social justice uh, got me thinking about, you know, what do all these monks, what did all these monks in Tibet, what was their social position? What did they do? What did they contribute to society? And to what extent was that sort of driven by Buddhist ideology or, you know, uh, Buddhist ideas? and that got me interested or got me working on the topic, uh, which eventually became this book. 
That's great. Um, I love how, you know, you just thought, hey, what's going to happen? And here you are. It's quite wonderful. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm sure all the people out there embarking on a project that deals with very much understudied genres of Buddhist texts, myself included, would love to hear more about um, the process of you kind of choosing these texts, finding them, and how these kind of grew. Um, if you could share your experience, maybe some of the challenges, and if there's any memorable moments that come to mind. Yes, I think, I mean, maybe this is a, uh, gives some hope to, to people who sort of um, struggle with, with their, their choice of topic, and be- because this was initially my plan B. What I had, what I wanted to do was, uh, you know, uh, choose a particular monastery in Tibet and, you know, study that from all angles. So use textual sources, oral history, and just look and, and, and manuscripts and documents, whatever I could find, and then look at it from all angles. So the lay people perspective, monastic perspective, you know, governmental perspective, what have you. Um, and to do that, I started preparing and just reading everything that was about Tibetan monasticism and, and monasteries and monks and also Tibetan materials. And this is how I um, sort of chanced upon this genre of uh, monastic guidelines of Jaik. Um, and I, th- I started reading them and I thought, oh, th- these are quite interesting. And, you know, I sort of made a note of them and, 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 and put them aside and then I went on a sort of a, a pre-fieldwork trip um, back in 2011. And uh, because, you know, doing fieldwork in central Tibet is really, well, let's say, near impossible, I went to come to eastern Tibet and I got set up really, you know, it was really quite nice. I had very good contacts with a monastery. I was uh, got permission from from the head lamas to be there. I had all these sort of names of people who could help me, etc. And then when I got there, or sort of on the road there, uh, I was turned back. And uh, you know, it was a rather sensitive time um, in uh, Kham, particularly in in eastern Tibet. And in the end, um, you know, we were—I was turned back, and the, there was sort of the pretext of you know the road being snowed, snowed over, and there was you know it wasn't safe to go. And you know, of course, later in the day, the driver sort of went, came to find me and say, you know, oh no, no, the road is fine, we can go. And I said, well, maybe they don't want me to be there. Um, so that trip ended in. You know, disaster. It was sort of the worst possible scenario you could imagine doing pre-field work because the, the question I went with was, would it be possible to to do this kind of field work? And it came. We, I came back with a very clear answer: no, um, unfortunately. And this is when I decided to focus on that genre of text that I had encountered previously. Uh, that I found absolutely fascinating. And I decided that it would be not a study of one particular monastery, but a study of all monasteries in uh, Tibet, which is, of course, um, in some ways easier and in many ways also a lot more difficult. Gosh. 
yes, that, that was that was terrible. But I think in the end, you know, it was all for the best because uh, hopefully this um, this research uh, has a sort of a more broader a broader appeal uh, to scholars and other readers because it's not so much a micro study but a, a macro study of Tibetan monasticism. Uh, before no definitely yeah yeah I was looking through your bibliography and just being completely taken back by the number of chaiks that you looked at (laughs) um so could you tell us a bit more about these texts chaiks what they are and what are they exactly and what can we see in them so these chaik these are mm, mm, when they are written for monasteries um they're monastic guidelines uh, which are basically bo- works that deal with the organization of monasteries and monks. Um, they are to sort of order um, monks. Uh, they are sort of local rules, what, the rules that you might have for, let's say, a university or other sort of communities. Um, and very interesting about these um this genre of works is that they interact with, you know, the monastic Indic codes, so the Vinaya, um, but at the same time they also react to um, situations on, on the ground. So they also sort of set themselves up to being, um, um, in many ways, it's very local and temporary documents. So saying, you know, they react and they would sort of literally say, uh, you know, uh, for this particular time and place, we need some specific rules. And what we then get is uh, sources that are very valuable for, um, let's say, the social history uh, of monasteries, um, because they describe not the ideal and sort of the idealized um um, information that we often get from autobiographies and other sort of um, Tibetan religious sources, but we get um, um, uh, documents, we get sources that that both interact with Buddhist ideas, at the same time they interact with um, uh, what was happening right there and then. Uh, so in that sense, they are uh, they are pretty unique as 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 these kinds of as this kind of genre goes, I would say. And is there something um, that you can use to call them a genre? Because um, I guess in some ways it sounds almost as if some of them can be quite different to one another, depending on the period of history or the location. Um, yes, I mean, there are many uh, sort of, this is quite a, a long discussion one could have on uh to what extent it's 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 one uh, genre? We can see it's sort of developing as a genre um, more uh, later on, so from the fifteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth century onwards, and it's really established as a genre from the seventeenth and eighteenth century onwards. Uh, but we have earlier, you could say, proto jaik uh, monastic guidelines that sometimes address not just uh, monks, uh, but also uh, other practitioners, not necessarily um, uh, ordained people. So they address a religious community. 
uh, one also finds the same words, Tibetan words used to address um, lay communities. Um, so the, it has the, the word has a, a broader usage to some extent, um, but I would say the lion's share of, of the jayik that we have deal particularly uh, with monasteries and, and of course also uh, nunneries. Uh, so, so I would say that yes, there. It, in that sense, when you sort of define it more narrowly, then you can definitely talk about a genre there. And then you have, of course, a few uh, outliers that that fit, but you sort of understand why they are called jaik uh, as well. So you know that the 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 whole translation of the word. Uh, so it's it's a short form for jaik is a short form. For for the Tibetan which is document that establishes the rules or the, the law. Um, and this is, of course, you know, this could be more broadly uh, applicable uh, as well. But if you would, for example, go out nowadays to and ask monks, and this is what I did um, um, as part of my fieldwork, this time not in in. Uh, Tibetan areas in the PRC, but in um, in India, in uh, in exile, when you go out and ask monks, you know what what is a jayik and and what does it do, and you know people would be adamant in saying, you know, every monastery has to have one. It's absolutely vital that a monastery has one. So it's very much seen as part and parcel of the sort of. Uh, you know, it's a tool for monastic organization. I see. And that brings us to the monasteries. I think you mentioned in your book that um, between the 10th and 20th century, there was at least 6,000 monasteries being established in just the political area of Tibet. That's a huge number of monasteries. Um, yeah, so as the expert, could you tell us a bit more about the organization of monasteries and, you know, how, what are monasteries in Tibetan context and how do they differ from other Buddhist monasteries in other regions? Um, so, so yes, I mean the the number of six thousand is is one that I didn't come up with myself, but it's sort of well established that sort of there were bigger and small and many smaller monasteries uh, in um, you know the greater political Tibet, um, and you know if one has to, in one believes the claim of Tibetan monks nowadays that all monasteries had to have at least one jayik. Um, then and also the fact that jayik were regularly updated. So you know often the the texts themselves also state well you know the, there is a, already a set of monastic guidelines for this monastery, but things has have happened in the meantime and we had to update the rules. Um, so it, also if one takes into account uh, the the fact that many monasteries had multiple of these works, um, and then you start sort of making a calculation: six thousand monasteries, uh, you know, multiplied by you know uh, maybe two jayik, uh, which would be a, quite a conservative estimate. Um, then we come up with a huge number of of jayik, and I have located maybe more than 200 and and actually since the publication of the book I have found a, a couple more um so that just goes to show how many uh 
have not turned up and also how many are probably actually um, actually lost. Um, but getting back to your uh, your question about uh, you know what they actually did or how these monasteries actually then functioned in in Tibet. This is of course this you know this is is the uh, perhaps the largest part of my book is about about that because what I wanted to do is I wanted to look at the um, the way that the monastery functioned in society in uh, Tibetan society and actually not Tibetan society Tibetan Buddhist societies so I also look at works uh, written for Mongolian monasteries uh, uh, Malian uh, monasteries so in Nepal in Spiti in Ladakh and Bhutan um, and I wanted to to understand them and, and understand their relationship with with lay people and relationship with with the government and sort of these uh, and the extent to which these uh, relationships had any, any, whether they had anything to do with Buddhist beliefs. Um, but actually, in order to do that, I what, what I realized was that there wasn't uh, we don't when I when I was starting this research, I realized there wasn't a lot of scholarship on how these monasteries actually sort of uh, functioned in a sort of a, a more practical way. So, you know, how would they get around, how they were organized uh, economically, uh, how, uh, who could enter the monastery, uh, who was in charge of, of all these, um, all the management of, of the monastery, how did it, you know the, all these sort of daily, um, uh, you know, rules and regulations were not at all known or hardly known or written on uh, when I started um, this research. So that's this is something that I really had to tackle. I mean, and and that's also how the book became a combination of um, uh, you know providing very practical information about you know who did what in the monastery and. Uh, how much tea was was served to to whom and why, uh, but then also uh, more of the the Buddhist reasoning behind the actual management and the management of e- the economic um, uh, um, the the economic uh, issues and and also managing sort of more uh, legal. Uh, matters uh, uh, as well so so yeah that's how um, uh, that's so 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 this this book it has in that sense it's sort of a, a mixed uh, uh, the result is that that you know some things are matter some parts are rather practical and other parts are are very uh, much more sort of um, uh, engage with issues uh, that are, um, are of broader interest to to people in Buddhist studies, and this is also what I've tra- I've tried to do throughout my work is to to also uh, I, you know look at other kinds of Buddhist monasticisms and other kinds of uh, uh, or, or um, how monasteries in, for example, in Sri Lanka, in Burma, in Thailand, in China, and and um, 
to a lesser extent, Japan were organized and how, uh, you know, they would sort of be managing uh, the monasteries, how they would be um, dealing with lay people and how they would be also sort of linking that to uh, rules found in in the Vinaya. Um, and I think that makes it, hopefully, I hope that that makes it less uh, something that is, 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 of course, maybe useful to people in Tibetan studies, but also interesting to people uh, in Buddhist studies more, uh, more generally. No, you're definitely quite right, though. Um, I just remember a bit um, from, I think, I can't remember which chapter now, where you were talking about Stephen Collins's Selfless Persons and how he attempted to look at social difference in thought and practice taken into account by Buddhist doctrine and how they affected, and you proposed to, I think, inverse it and look at how this reflects in the context of the functions of monasteries in society. And I thought that was fascinating, um, especially taking into account the economics and the relationship between the laity and the monastery, um, worldly and spiritual. I wonder if you could say something a bit more about the social aspect. Yeah, so so what... Um... What Collins, of course, uh, did in this is in a very wonderful way is is also linking, um, you know, things that are uh, interesting, you know, when you're when you're dealing with uh, you know societies uh, or sociology perhaps even. So he's you know looking at how uh, social differences in thought and practice, you know, would be taken account of by Buddhist doctrine. Um, but then what I, indeed, as you said, what I wanted to, or I have tried to do is to actually inverse it and in saying, you know, um, I, I want, uh, what I wanted to do is, is, is look at the ways in which social differences and relationships then, you know, existed within a Buddhist society, um, but also to uh, examine then how uh, or whether these differences were were in in any way justified by aspects of Buddhist thinking. So taking the the realities on the ground again uh, first, and then um, trying to f- um, come up with or see if any kind of Buddhist ideology becomes apparent uh, in this uh, in investigation. So. Um, well, you know, the studies that we have that deal with Buddhist monasteries, um, uh, when they are not totally sort of starry-eyed and, you know, when they, when they don't, um, you know, talk about monks as being these wonderful holy creatures, uh, you know, praying for the welfare of, of all living beings and, and, you know, that being the only thing that they do, um, when they, when uh, scholars, especially in the past, and, and of course Melvin Goldstein would be uh, one of the, the primary scholars there. Uh, when they write about monasteries, then it's we get this very, um, you know, dry account of 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 you know monasteries act, only acting out of self interest, and of course we also do get this accusation of feudalism. And you know, monasteries have been accused of, of basically being responsible for 
you know, the Tibet's loss of independence even. Um, and then these studies don't take into account Buddhist thinking. And, and, and this is also often because these people don't have not learned about Buddhism. So, of course, if you don't know it, you don't see it. And once you, once you start, um, uh, once you learn it, once you know it, then you start seeing it everywhere. And this is what I found is that, you know, uh, in, uh, for me not, but maybe for some people, in some surprising ways, um, these monastic guidelines and, and therefore also the monasteries, in, in fact, eventually truly engage with uh, rules in the Vinaya. And even when it doesn't serve their interests, um, they would still engage with the Vinaya. Um, you see that the way um, that monasteries um, functioned, acted, managed themselves, uh, was uh, essentially to perpetuate themselves. And of course, these are institutions, and, and you know, the institution is, is bigger than the, the individuals. So, um, you know, that would already be a reason to perpetuate a certain kind of uh, institution. But what I truly believe is that at least the authors of these guidelines were concerned not with, not just with their monastery um, prospering, but also they saw the monastery as a vehicle for the flourishing of the Dharma. And, uh, you know, and of course the rationale, which is very well known, is if the, if the Dharma flourishes, then, you know, people will be able to practice and people will be able to accumulate, you know, good karma and, you know, they will be able to do virtuous things, which would result in happiness uh, for people. And, uh, and also, you know, obviously local people to have a prospering monastery nearby would mean that, you know, your area your, uh, would prosper, you know, your harvest would be good, you know, that the local gods would be happy and all that. Um, so I do feel that these monasteries and, and the authors of these monastic guidelines truly felt a responsibility for their surroundings, um, but just not in the way that we would think of and uh, of, of you know, um, a monastery's responsibility. And this is, of course, also because we, um, and of course, even the word monastery is, is very loaded with uh, Christian connotations. And, and we have this idea of, of monks and nuns, and this is, you know, very strongly influenced by um, uh, you know the, the Christianity uh, you know, being predominant in in the Western world. Um, that monks and nuns are there to be of service directly to people, and you know it's of course very interesting that um, Christian monasteries, and I, I've also sort of tried to engage with uh, with writing um, on uh, Christian. Monasticism, Christian monasteries, and this scholarship is much, uh, you know, further uh, developed. Where 
the argument is actually made that um, monasteries were, early medieval monasteries were in fact responsible for, or sort of the um, very initial um, or you know starting uh, institutions that we still have today, which have been vital to you know sort of welfare of 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 humans. So, for example, you can think of, of hospitals and old people's homes and orphanages uh, and all all these kind of sort of more sort of um, well established educational uh, institutions. These were all initially set up by Christian uh, monks and, and nuns. So we have this idea of, of this is um, how this should be the function of, of monasteries. And then we go to uh, not just Tibet, I would say, we go to Asia and we see that the situation is really quite different. And now I'm talking more of the of you know the pre-modern situation of course the modern situation is is quite uh, different in and these days we find uh, that monks and nuns do a tremendous amount of of good works uh buddhist monks and nuns do tremendous work for uh for uh, people and also for animals um but in the past it was different and you know one of the questions i ask in the book is you know these these Christian monasteries developed in this way, and um, and in fact, if you look at it, Tibetan monasteries had the means. They had educated people. They had the wealth. They had the the power. You could say, um, why did they not establish these kinds of things? And of course, this is not the most important question. Uh, but it's still something that I uh, engage with. And I think, yeah, one of the answers is why they did not um, um, see themselves as having such a, a social function, sort of a direct or sort of being uh, responsible for directly for the welfare of uh, other people is exactly that, that much more far-reaching aim that monastics had and have that is you know being of benefit to to all sentient beings um so then there you know the continuity of the monastery is much more important than helping uh you know the poor people uh in the village for example mm. and who who were the authors of these texts do we know that um, for most of the extant uh, monastic guidelines, we know uh, because this is how they they were preserved in the collected works of these authors. So the Sumbum, uh, and this is how we can f- uh, find most of the uh, of the of where we can find most of the Jai. Um Sometimes they were also uh, anonymous, and then you know. Um, there are uh, a lot uh, uh, less of those, um, uh, and you know the the colophon would then state that it was a group of monks who were you know have who would have managerial positions in the monastery who had come together and talked about issues and wrote down uh, a certain uh, document. 
Um, and I think this is, in fact, how most monastic guidelines would have come about anyway. But, of course, you need some, especially, you know, in the Tibetan context, you need some figure of authority approving it. Uh, you know, otherwise, the monks would simply not accept, um, you know, uh, accept these rules. They would have to be made um, uh, acceptable by having a, 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 an important master or lama, you know, signing his name uh, to the document. So often we see that the authors also state that they have consulted, uh, you know, uh, monks uh, in, in, in the management and that they, you know, in accordance with their, um, you know, with sort of speaking with them, uh, deliberating with them, they, would, they had written down uh, these rules. And this has to be the case because we have all these uh, sets of monastic guidelines that were written by, for example, um, you know, uh, the fifth Dalai Lama for areas where the fifth Dalai Lama had never been, for, for monasteries in areas where he'd never been. Uh, so it was very clear that it's it sort of the, the, then the, the contents of these uh, chayik would be based on whatever the, you know, the managers would have communicated to him and he would just write it down and give his views on it um, and then, you know, put his name down and then it would be, uh, you know, would have some kind of authority. But of course, you know, all the, all the monastic guidelines obviously were written by uh, monks, um, even the ones that we have uh, for nunneries. And we have very few of those, um, unfortunately. Um, so, um, and this is something that I hope, uh, you know, these are the documents that I hope will still turn up. So I think I have found about four that were written for nunneries. Um, and, uh, you know, all of them were written by, um, uh, by uh, male monastic authors. Um, when I asked, um, when I did my field work, I asked, one of the abbots for uh, you know a contemporary nunnery in in India. I asked you know why do we have that? Why do we have all these monastic guidelines for uh, for monasteries uh, and so few for nunneries? And he would just you know, and of course this is something that I find difficult to believe. But he would say, yeah, well nuns are much more uh, more disciplined, so they don't need that many rules. Um, we knew which that is, wasn't course, true in the Vinaya. <laughs> exactly, I was going to say this exactly the opposite of what we find right. in uh, in the Vinaya. So um, this is something that um, maybe if anyone is listening to this, you know, I can go out and look for these jake for nunneries because they're going to be really quite uh, interesting to study. No, definitely. Yeah, so it probably also tells us something about the relationship between different monasteries and the hierarchies between, like, main monasteries and sister monasteries and nunneries also? Um, yes, uh, yes and no, actually. I mean, um, what I have found is that, you know, by studying these, this, these monastic guidelines as a genre, then you can see very big differences in... Uh, you know uh, the, 
the, the target audience. So clearly when uh, we have a, a main monastery, um, then, you know, there's a, a lot more uh, that the authors are often more concerned with um, the way that the monastery looks politically. Uh, they're, uh, when they're rich, of course, they're less concerned with, uh, so that's also a, a factor, you know, the economic status of the monastery. Uh, you, you find, you know, they, the economic st- status really uh, is reflected also in these monastic guidelines. Um, but um, it unfortunately does not uh, give a very good picture of how main monasteries related themselves to subsidiary uh, monasteries. What we do see is that you know subsidiary mon- monastic guidelines of monastic guidelines for these smaller branch monasteries, uh, they would say, okay, so we are a branch monastery of this and that monastery, um, but our situation on the ground is different so therefore we need different rules and then they would say okay you know um the you know the liturgy the prayers and and that sort of the calendar and this is another topic that the uh contains a lot of information about about you know what um, puja to be to do when um so this is also before i i i uh, started working on this you know the the scholars who did know a little bit about these texts would often say oh yes well th- those are the boring ones with just you know calendar dates and names of prayers in them and in fact you know some of them are full of that um but i've actually found that uh, the largest part actually is um much more um you know, uh, engaging than just talking about when to do which uh, prayer. So, you know, they would be the same, these these uh, monastic guidelines in terms of, you know, the, the uh, liturgical calendar, but then they would differ and sometimes also they would uh, sort of uh, explicitly do so and say, you know, our situation is different from the from the main monastery and we cannot afford to do this and this or we have to uh, act so and so. Um, so it does give you an idea of of the relations in that sense. But I would say that you know this is really uh, a topic that really needs is in in in, in uh, dire need to be properly researched. The, this this relationship between main monasteries and branch monasteries also. Um, in terms of sort of the economic uh, situation and, and um, well, sort of micro-political uh, situations. This is something that um, I think the take that I had did not give a great deal of information on, um, but it's something that somehow uh, we need to uh, work on in, in, in more detail. Definitely. Um, I have so much to ask you, but I'm going to hold back right now. <laughs> um, yeah, and then just kind of remembering back to parts of the book, like the legal function of these monasteries, where I think these chaiks even mentioned things like punishments and um, relating not just to monastics, but also the laity. 
Um, yes, I think this is one of the, for me, surprising uh, outcomes of, of the research was that, you know, we have this idea of monasteries sort of taking care of themselves and, you know, um, um, but at the same time, they're also um, in society. Um, but what we see is, and that is what I found rather surprising, is that in uh, quite a few instances, monasteries were allowed or expected even to um, punish lay people as well. So to, to be in charge of um, you know, legal matters when it came to lay people uh, trespassing on their um, uh, territory. Um, so the, um, the relationship between um, lay people and monks was in that sense quite uh, complex in that uh, definitely, and this is what we see in early Buddhism uh, as well, the, the monks had a lot more uh, privilege um, in terms of um, you know, their own uh, legal autonomy um, and you know, uh, very much in line with, uh, with Indian Buddhism but also the sort of the earliest edicts we have um, uh, when monastic Buddhism, let's say, was just established in Tibet where monks are given more uh, rights, I would say, than lay people. This continued for a very long time. And uh, monks indeed were expected to deal with their own legal issues unless it affected or unless it, um, uh, you know, there was uh, in cases of murder, um, and which of course makes entire sense. And in some cases, cases when uh, treason uh, was involved, and of course treason is a very complex matter and it's easily sort of becomes a sort of a, a trumped up political uh, accusation but at least this was um, um, what was you know the, the the idea behind um or or the, the the legal situation of these monasteries and it's absolutely absolutely um here the the monastic guidelines back up what we know from uh traveler accounts and oral history uh, and such like that they they really did um, uh, take care of their own legal matters. They mediated, the monks mediated um, uh, issues when lay people had issues among each other. And also they were in some cases allowed to, to fine and uh, otherwise punish lay people who would sort of in some way or another um, impact uh, the monastery negatively or sort of, you know, would um, uh, um, break the rules of the monastery. So to that extent, you could say that in, 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 uh, in some cases, the Jaik, the monastic guidelines, don't just um, uh, contain rules for monks, but also rules for lay people and whoever deals with that particular uh, monastery. And that sort of presents us with a, a small problem because, of course, um, uh, these monastic guidelines tended to be documents 
that were directed towards monks in particular um, and not to lay people. But, you know, one can assume that these kinds of rules were often obvious, like, you know, you shouldn't hunt on monastic grounds or you shouldn't sell sell alcohol on monastic uh, grounds, things like that. But, you know, one can assume that these were uh, communicated orally to to local people, lay people uh, in the surroundings. Can you think of any examples that really kind of jump out in your mind when you think back at these anecdotes? Um, let me uh, let me think. Um, one of the perhaps, and and maybe I'm just sort of um, giving a, a, a juicy example. Juicy and this is, is actually, juicy I mean, I am <laughs> juicy is good, but I'm also I also want to say that you know. Um, when I was doing my field work, one of the monks, and actually, generally speaking, you know, I had some questions, I asked people questions, especially elderly monks, about how the situation was in, in you know, uh, pre-1950s uh, Tibet. And of course, I asked sort of critical questions, you know, how, you know, did people have enough food? And, you know, did people share? And how did they people deal with the lay, you know, the ordinary people, etc. And uh, people were very generally very positive to um, the kind of research that I was doing. Only one person who was actually um, uh, from, um, I think, uh, in uh, Spiti or somewhere like that, he 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 said, "Oh well, you are just doing this to, um, uh, you know, to uh, put the, the Buddhist uh, monks in, you know." Put them down or or make them look bad um, and this is really not the case I would say for me uh, the you know the many years that I've been engaging with this material my respect and admiration for uh, monastics have has only uh, increased even though you know my book uh, does also show the sort of the underbelly of uh, you know, Tibetan monastic uh, monastic life. But of course, one of the... Um, okay, back to the juicy... Uh, <laughs> um, the, the juicy... Uh, um, uh, yeah, example is that, you know, um, so some of these texts deal with um, what would happen if a monk would have sex. Um, so if one if a monk would break one of the parajikas. And of course, most of the texts would definitely say, okay, when you do this, you're out. You're no longer uh, a monk. And, you know, the, the, these texts would then describe what happens when a monk, uh, when, uh, you know, a monk is turned out and the, the kind of punishment uh, that he, uh, he is given. Um, but then there's also a case, and um, I also wrote a little article about that. Um, and this is a, 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 in a in an art in a set of monastic guidelines written for all of the Sikkimese monasteries in the very early twentieth uh, century, uh, where uh, the author uh, Sikyong Tuku 
who was later for a very short while the Maharaja of Sikkim, um, you know, he tries to modernize to some extent the monasteries, and but also he just wants um, higher quality monks at the monasteries. But he says, uh, in so many words, um, you know, you ideally you should be celibate, but if you do need to have sex, um, only sleep with your brother's wives. So, you know, that sounds, you know, of course, to a Western audience, that sounds outrageous. But of course, there is a, a reason for it. Because what happens when, you know, you, um, as a monk, step out and you have sex? Well, there is a danger or the possibility of procreating. And of course, once you have children, you know, you have a, a woman who gets pregnant, you have to take care of this, you know, the, the, the children um, uh, economically. But if you have sex with your brother's wife, all the children that are born out of that union are your brother's and not yours. So they are taken care of. And of course, that whole um, uh, notion of the sort of polyandry, where a, a woman um, has um, uh, more than one husband, and often, and well, more often than not, they are brothers, is not strange to that culture. Um, so, in many ways, you know, it makes sense. So, this author was very much aware that a lot of the uh, inhabitants of monasteries in Sikkim uh, were actually, you know, um, not uh, keeping to their vows of celibacy. So he just sort of made, found a middle way in which you say, you know, if it really, if it really, if you really have to do it, then do it in a wise way, which is to have sex with your brother's wife. Which now sounds much more rational in that context. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's, it's totally, <laughs> it makes total sense. <laughs> right. I think we've taken up a lot of your time already. Um, so I just want to draw attention back to something you said in the conclusion about how the lack of religious competition need to protect the Dharma in the age of degenerate or degenerate age um, that influenced Tibetan societies and has led to a comparatively low level of social change. And I think that's a really wonderful conclusion. And I don't know, I guess the question is like, what next? What's next for this project and also for you? Um, yes. Um, so. What's next for this topic? I, I think that, um, as I said in the beginning, a lot of uh, or a fair number of scholars are, are taking up, are reading, have started reading this, this genre of monastic guidelines um, and appreciating them uh, for what they are, namely very, um, uh, very valuable sources for the social history of religious institutions in Tibetan areas. Um, this is something that I'm, you know, I'm still very interested in. Um, I, um, I continue doing research on uh, exactly this topic. I think, uh, you know, I have quite a lot of research interests, but if I, I, I recently found out, like, what is, what connects it? And it's, I think that is, is where, society and religion so in this case you know tibetan societies and buddhist religion where they touch where they meet or where they you know um 
collide and it's exactly this is this is where i'm interested what i'm interested in and that takes me also to my current research project which um is on the um interrelation or you know the um uh, the, the relationship between buddhism and law in um um, the Gondon Potong periods, so uh, mainly 17th, 18th, and 19th uh, century. So I actually look at um, Tibetan legal texts, um, and you know these texts have unfortunately not been studied in a great in great detail. And I look at um, what kind of Buddhist ideological ideas I can find in these. And it has been remarked by other scholars that actually these legal texts are very secular in nature and, you know, they don't really um, resonate any sort of kind of Buddhism. But having studied these monastic guidelines, then I have actually found that it's not exactly the Buddhism as we know it. Also, the monastic guidelines, they don't talk about, you know, karma and enlightenment and all these things that we very, you know, sort of on a, on a surface uh, associate with Buddhism. But um, these legal texts do uh, convey this, uh, a very interesting relationship with sort of more um, Vinayak kind of Buddhism or monastic Buddhist ideology. So this is something I'm, I'm working on now. And at the, same time, at the same time, I also see that these monastic guidelines and other sort of um, documents that deal with uh, the management of monasteries uh, are also in, in, are also influenced by these legal texts. So I'm looking at how these two kinds of texts and two kinds of ideas, Buddhism and law, how they um, worked together. So this um, uh, so I'm working on a, on, on a book that will hope, hopefully, be uh, that I hope hopefully will finish in, in not too uh, not too long. That's very exciting. Well, when you do, would love to have you back. Oh yes, that would around. be wonderful if you would still have me after all of this. Oh, definitely, definitely, <laughs> definitely have you back. Well, thank you so much for your time and for joining thank us today. Thank you and for having yeah. me. It was really a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. And yeah, I look forward to hearing more about your work. Okay, great. Thanks.